0: Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP.
1: Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. slash pockets carefully consider the investment objectives risks charges and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing this and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrisecom flagship this is a paid advertisement
2: you're trying to close on your next rental so why is your insurance company dragging its feet with long lead times and never-ending paper forms it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined by Jamil Damji today. How you doing, man? How you doing, bro? I'm doing great. It is like finally summer out. We have an awesome show to do today. I feel like you and I haven't done a show together in a long time. It's a good day. I'm excited about this one because
3: I have spent the last few days really diving into the world of uh, Ivy Zellman. And I'm telling you, I am thoroughly impressed with this lady. She's so brilliant. She's, you know, I, I consider you one of the smartest people I know. And now I think just, I'm going to, I'm, she's, definitely going to be the smartest person I know.
1: Well, thank you for saying that, but it's not even in the same league. (laughs) It's like (laughs) an extremely experienced uh, and very intelligent uh, person and has a whole team of researchers. Uh, Kalen actually put together a bio for us uh, to read about Ivy, and it's like the length of a full high school essay. Um, But needless to say, Ivy has been working on uh, who, Ivy, I should say, is our guest today, Ivy Zellman, who is the CEO of Zellman & Associates. She's basically just been a thought leader on Wall Street, uh, specifically in the housing industry, for a really long time. She works a lot with builders, new construction, uh, institutional investors, and she became really famous. I think, you know, in Wall Street, she was already very well respected, but she became more of a mainstream name because she famously, in 2006... Far before most people did, called the crash, uh, the housing market crash in 2008. So I feel very lucky that we have Ivy coming on to help us make sense of the very confusing market. Obviously, we have already had this conversation with her. So I'm curious, Jamil, like, what were some of the main takeaways you think our audience should pay attention to here? I
3: think, you know, again, her point of view is that. You know, there's so many people that are still screaming, there's a shortage in inventory. There's a shortage in inventory. And you have to really understand what does that mean? And who is compiling this data and, and what, what methodologies are they using to do it? I think that when she makes a very compelling argument that she, you have to actually look at demand and the percent of change in order to understand, you know, do we really have an inventory crisis? Are we short on homes? And I'm, Uh, You know, after hearing her argument, I'm starting to question that thought altogether.
1: Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, it 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 seems that way, right? Because inventory is so tight. And then we hear these studies from big companies, Moody's Analytics, NAR, Freddie Mac, you know, big companies saying that we have a housing shortage. And I've honestly sort of just believed them. But to her point, me too. These companies, they don't always share their methodology. So you don't really know how they're getting there, but you think, oh, all these big companies all have said we're in some sort of shortage, whether it's 1 million, 3 million, 7 million, whatever. Um, You sort of start to believe it because it's directionally all the same. But Ivy brings up some very contrarian and interesting points about maybe we're not. Like maybe we do have enough housing. Maybe we are building an appropriate amount. And that of course, has huge implications for the housing market and pricing over the next couple of years. So uh, I totally agree. Very important thing to watch out for and listen up for in this interview. We are going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back with Ivy Zellman from Zellman and Associates.
4: Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure.
2: find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.
1: Ivy Zelman, welcome to On The Market. Thanks so much for being here.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Given your extensive experience in the housing sector, I'm curious if you could help us If you could just start by categorizing this housing market and how you read the current market situation. Um,
5: For 2023, I think the first half of the year has been um, somewhat surprisingly resilient. I'd say there is a bit of a divergence between the existing market and the new home market. We're talking from a transaction perspective i um, happy to elaborate, but I'd say the spring selling season was definitely a surprise, an upside surprise to many in terms of the strength. And we are also seeing stabilization in price uh, sequentially um, starting to accelerate and builders are feeling more confident about pushing price, even with affordability stretched. Um, I think that the um, existing home market is very challenged from a lack of supply, which I'm happy to elaborate on and some thoughts as to why and challenges that lie ahead. Great.
1: Can we can we dig into that a little bit? Because our audience generally is probably more familiar with the existing home market. So could you just help us explain some context about some of the historical differences between the new and existing home markets?
5: Sure. So if we think about, you know, overall housing, the new home market is a very relatively small percent. It accounts for in the low teens as a percent of the total uh, transactions or total overall sales. And if you think about the existing homes, call it, just for rough math, 85% of the market, the challenges that existing homeowners have today is that many of them are disincentivized to sell because they're locked in at rates substantially lower than today's prevailing rate. Um, A remarkable number of people, over 50%, are below 3.5% and roughly 90% below 5%, with rates now roughly back almost at 7%. Freddie Mac came out today. The 30 year fixed was at 6.91, which is the benchmark that we use. Um, I think that the um, disincentive is real. And what we've seen is a plummeting in new listings. What we have seen um, as well is that those homes that are not pristine, are not in pristine condition, that are not in desirable locations, are sitting longer. And there's a lot of pricing expectations that are still elevated given the surge in pricing that markets enjoyed during COVID, post-COVID. So there's um, more of a reality check in, in terms of those um, homes that need to probably adjust. On the other hand, depending on the market, where there is a limited level of availability, you do have transactions. You always have, as the realtors joke, the three Ds, death, divorce, and default. And then you also have, there's no D for relocations, but we could just call discretionary, another D. And we do have discretionary movers who are, you know, moving for lifestyle reasons. Um, those people that are trying to buy, whether they're relocating or just choosing to move up, they find it very limited in terms of choices. So you see in those cases, in the, you know, it's always real estate's location, location, location. And you come in and homes are actually seeing those that are on the market multiple bids. You know, it's uh, bidding wars again. I am based in Cleveland, Ohio, on the east side of Cleveland, just had breakfast at the Pancake House with the largest broker in the really independent broker in the country, one of them, and they're in multiple markets across the Midwest and the Southeast and pretty much the Eastern Corridor, and they were he was telling me a story about a home that I know the street and that the house was lifted, listed on Sunday at 7.25 and closed on Tuesday at 9.24, Whoa. And there were multiple offers. And this is a suburb in Cleveland in a good school district. And frankly, you know, there's many stories like that. On the other hand, you can look at a home that's about uh, probably a 40 minute drive from where this particular home is. And there might be homes on the market that aren't moving. So it it the divergence is really clear on where location and school district um, being the factors and variables that are most important. I I can elaborate on interesting things he he discussed with me today, but I I think Jamila, you had a question. I could tell. Yeah,
3: what's interesting is I actually deal in the the D's that you're talking about—death, divorce—and and and so you know, for the market that I'm in, right, which is mainly looking at those properties that need to be repositioned or uh, updated and refreshed. We're still seeing some pretty high demand from the investor pool, the investor buyers, but not so much the retail home buyers. So. What have you seen just with respect to what's happening, you know, in the spring market? Is there different types of buyers for different types of classes and, and assets, and, and how has that affected, you know, inventory and the market in general?
5: Well, we actually do a um, single-family rental survey that is really surveying property managers, owners, and operators that might have portfolio as small as a dozen homes or even six, six to a dozen. And then there might be someone, a significant um, institutional investor that might own thousands of homes. And just to give people perspective, roughly, you know, a little under 40 million uh, single family rentals exist in this country, and less than 2% are owned by institutional investors. So it's really a mom and pop business. And interestingly, right now, when you think about, you know, the survey that one of the questions we ask is the appetite for new capital into the marketplace, the institutions have pulled back, but investors... Retail investors have not. They're still in the market looking. Um, I think that there was a bit of a, 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 a slowdown in 22 as a result of uncertainty, but then that started picking up from the retail investors. It's pretty interesting though because you know one of the challenges that real estate brokers have today is really providing um, any type of product offering to those that are interested, whether it be investors or primary buyers. And part of the challenge is they actually surveyed many of the mom and pop landlords and asked them, you know, would you be willing to sell? And a lot of them that responded, and I don't know, I think it was a pretty significant sample, and I think it was done, I may be mistaken, but through the NAR, and where the feedback really suggested they want to sell, they've made a ton of money. And even though they like their annuity stream from being, you know, you know, highly occupied, that capital gain tax keep them from selling, which if there was a way that, you know, our legislators would actually recognize that we can actually free up many homes that could be either refurbished, flipped to first-time buyers, and you can offer it to those that are in minority situations or minority owners. There's a lot of things that can be done, but the fact that the retail investor is still looking to invest is because when you have inflation, historically, the best safe haven to be is in residential real estate. And so there's still a lot of money out there. People have made a ton. They're trying to figure out where do I put the money and get the best return? I mean, today... When you look at the returns on single-family rental, um, or assuming they're doing it, let's just say rental, you know, U.S. Treasuries are, are, are pretty much be- a better deal. You can argue after you just look at the value and the returns. So, you know, I, I think that people don't really understand returns because otherwise they wouldn't be looking at those retail investors wouldn't still be looking at real estate. But it's something they can touch and hold. And there's, you know, clearly been a very strong um, level level of performance that they can look to, and that's what they want.
3: Got it. So do you think that the market is sort of normalized then for the spring or or, or are we still kind of in flux?
5: I think what, you know, I would say is the market's stuck. We're kind of stuck in a um, transaction market that will probably not grow this year. I think we'll be under pressure, Uh, you know, to get any growth at all. You know, you really have to have either rates come down substantially to improve affordability and get people more likely to list their home and therefore have, you know, a catalyst to buy the next home or move up. Um, Again, people in rentals are unfortunately in multifamily are seeing significant rent inflation that's now decelerating. And I'm sure many of them would like to buy, but affordability, the way we measure it, we're probably about 20 plus percent above historic trend lines in terms of how stretched we are. So I think that you have to have a pretty dynamic um, shift in affordability. And alternatively, you know, an offering of affordable housing, which we don't have today. And if you look at investing, you know, I don't, we don't expect home prices to plunge. We don't expect anything that looks like a GFC. But the question is, do you buy today at today's values? What are your, what's your returns going to look like? And what's your cost of capital? So based on that returns, based on that cost of capital, it may not be that that is the best place to be doing investing today. And depending on the location, if you're doing a flip, you know you're going to spend quite a bit on the building products and labor and materials are at inflationary peak levels still with the exception of lumber your labor is still at peak levels it's highly constrained that's not likely to change so the investment that you have to make to get that house you know livable could be substantial that you have to factor into as well if you're again a retail investor that's expecting that they can easily have that unit occupied it may not be as simple as they think, and we are starting to see some softening in occupancy in the single-family rental market. And there is a lot of build-for-rent product that is now in certain parts of the country we refer to as the smile states, the sand states, where Phoenix. a lot of capital chased the opportunity where people were migrating to. So it very much, in my mind, is somewhat market-dependent, but I do think there's more competition, and there's a t- tremendous amount of competition coming in the rental market from completions that we expect are going to be up you know, 20 plus percent and, and accelerating because we're at the largest level of backlog for multifamily that we have been since 1973. So that could put pressure on rents and therefore keeping people, you know, more likely to stay in multifamily because it's more attractive as an alternative.
1: Interesting. So you're saying that tenants may stay in multifamily because there's an oversupply and multifamily that will drive down rents and it will become more affordable for tenants to stay in a multifamily where they traditionally prefer a single family rental.
5: Yeah, or even trade, Dave. Let's just say that, you know, you're not you, you know, when when it's go back to, you know, a need-based move, you know, your your wife is expecting your second child, you've been in a two-bedroom, it's not gonna work anymore. That that won't likely, therefore, apples to apples, you really can't compare the multifamily tenant to what would be likely a single-family rental tenant. But in some cases, if they have to, they could stay another year. But let's say they may trade into a new high-rise that has now um, opened and is leasing up at better attractive prices. And they might have said, well, we we're going we to buy a house, but there's a three-bedroom we can get or there's a larger two-bedroom. Why don't we just live there? It's, it's a much better deal. So you're going to start to see that the pie is fairly finite in terms of households. And the question is, where do they choose to pursue shelter? and what becomes the most attractive with respect to affordability and, again, going back to location and schools.
1: Ivy, you are an expert on builders and new construction and their sentiment, and so I would love the opportunity while you're here to to pick your brain a little bit about that. Given what you said at the top of the show, where new construction is taking on a bigger portion of total overall home sales, how would you evaluate builder sentiment right now, particularly when we're talking about single-family Construction.
5: Um, I'd say cautiously optimistic. They've been burned before, and right now, they are seeing continued strength into May, and and now May's over. Today being the end of May, but I would say the commentary around May, and we'll do our our new home home our home building survey for May in the first week of June. But what we've heard anecdotally is May has remained strong. Hovnanian reported a public company today. And they indicated that May has remained solid in terms of trends. I think that that is really a reflection of today's, what I call, uh, consumers' perception that home prices are not going to go down. So I think the biggest factor when we're dealing with you know sentiment is related to fear. And fear starts when rates are surging, buyers pull back, builders had to incentivize, whether it was predominantly mortgage rate buy-downs and other Uh, free upgrades option upgrades discounting actual price cuts and net net in 22 we saw call it a 10 to 20 percent decline net prices including incentives that created opportunities for those that were seeking value it was a catalyst and there was many people during covid that wanted to buy during the surge of you know those seeking distance and and space that didn't get to so those people on the sidelines come in and start buying And oh, oh, guess home prices aren't going to go down. So now you have the fear factor has been eliminated. Now it goes back to affordability. So who can afford 7% mortgage rates? How long before we start to see what arguably would be the pet of demand that has now been unleashed start to fade? And I would say that, you know, the new home market is really not accelerating. It's just taking share from what otherwise would have been existing home. And so if you factor in both existing and new, Really, the housing market is kind of sluggish when you think about transactions. But the new home market is definitely seeing continued strength at the at the I guess expense of existing homes. And not because there isn't demand, but because again, there's not product in the right locations at the right price in a plentiful amount.
3: So are you guys like monitoring this regionally? And are we seeing, you know, different markets having increases in building versus other markets decreasing in building?
5: Well, you know, the new construction market, we do monitor the nation. We market the top 50 MSAs. Uh, We fortunately have um, several hundred builders that are large private builders that we've been surveying for the last, you know, 30 years. And and we have every month, apples to apples, what's happening with respect to their performance in every metric we track. But I would say that the, you know, builders are a bit... um, likely to go where all the builders will go to the same markets where job growth is the most plentiful, where there is land to purchase. You know, you go into the tri-state area of the New York area. There's really not any new construction. There's build on your own lot. There's really not a lot of new home production, semi-custom builders. Toll brothers a little bit in Pennsylvania. There's very little new construction, but there are a few smaller privates. You know, you keep going east of the um, west of the Mississippi and you go east of the Mason Dixon line. You know, you're going to see more builders where they can buy land. And in those markets where job growth and also relocation has been the most prevalent, those are the markets that are probably performing the best. So um, investors were less prevalent in the Southeast um, as, as much more prevalent in the West. And we saw the West really get hit hard in 2022, much more so than the Southeast. Um, the Southeast remains still a very strong market and really didn't, as I mentioned, 10 to 20 percent, that was na- nationwide for the new home market really like Carolina's really didn't see any pricing pressure. So you can go and look at specific markets and there are no question winners and losers on a relative basis. And I'd say that we continue to see those markets that are really, you know, more desirable from climate, from just overall tax uh, status, whether it's no income state tax. Um, There's also, of course, just uh, the um, overall pricing. If you go into, you know, the California MSAs, it's a hell of a lot more expensive to live there, even though the weather's great, versus living in, let's say, the Texas markets where the weather might not be as attractive, but there's no income tax and it's very affordable. So there, there are definitely winners and losers relative, but I say directionally the market remains in a for the new market, all within a stable to improving trend line.
1: Ivy, mean, do you think that we're starting a new Trend or era of the housing market where new construction is going to take up a higher proportion of home sales going forward, because as you said, the disincentive to sell your home right now is real, and unless rates drop significantly, that disincentive seems like it might continue indefinitely. So I'm curious if you think that's going to this this new trend is going to continue.
5: You know, our view has been that land values have not corrected whatsoever. And if anything, they're re-accelerating as builders are back you know, with their foot on the gas to purchase land as they took a break during 22's correction. So as land prices are either stable to um, increasing, it's very difficult for a builder to build an affordable home at today's cost structure. So I think they're going to have a harder and harder time delivering affordable homes, and therefore affordability matters, could they still show some modest growth within a framework where the economy is not in recession, job market's still strong? You know they could, but from a secular perspective, I do anticipate a slow but steady increase in the new home market gaining share. But don't that doesn't mean that the new home market isn't cyclical. So if we start to think about what we're seeing in the broader economy, with inflation still, you know, obviously stubbornly high and not seeing that improvement that the Fed would like to see, you know, what what happens in the future if we start to see the Fed taking more action, having to continue to raise, or if they pivot to cutting, why are they cutting? Is the situation very grim? Are we in a recession? Because housing really is about confidence in jobs and rates. You know, there's there's not really one single variable that matters. But I think that longer-term under the backdrop of where we are right now as a, an economy, I think it's steady, slow win for the new home market to continue to gain share in the current environment.
3: So with this like foot on the gas approach that you describe, you know, considering you've got a contrarian view on home building, do you think we're currently overbuilding? And, and what do you see happening in the long run?
5: You know, our view has been not that we're overbuilding as much as if we completed all the homes that were started, we would be You know, likely building it for a single family ahead of what would be a level of normalized um, supply that you would need for today's households. The demographics in the United States doesn't look very good, frankly. I mean, if you think about the reduction in immigrants coming into the country, the death rate accelerating even ex-COVID, and then just overall population growth decelerating, which is really a function of, you know, birth rates coming down. So we have a lot of variables that are not, that don't bode well for the demographics. So when you think about the need for shelter. You really look at the rate of change incrementally. How many new households are being formed? Therefore, that rate of change should mean how many new units of shelter do you need? So, I think when you look at the market in that way, you would say that households are going to consolidate. Think about Europe and multi generational living, and what what product is being offered today? You know, my dad is coming to visit next week, and I have a two story with stairs, and he he needs to stay in a hotel because he can't get up the stairs. So he have to stay at a hotel, and so what product is out there for our aging population? Mobility rates in the United States have been under pressure well before any impact from rate changes have had on consumers being disincentivized to move. So for example, your you know tw- your cohort from 18 to twenty four in a given year, fifty percent move. But if you get to, you know old dogs like me, you know, we're in the single digits when we move within a given year, the percent of us that move. When you get into my father's cohort 82, you know, you're you're looking at very few moving. So what other than moving to a nursing home or, or passing, God forbid. My point being is that mobility is slowing with an aging population, which is further pressuring transactions and availability. And I think that in itself, when you start to think about what the biz perceived that we're so underbuilt, we're so underbuilt, if we offered homes that you can buy at thousand dollars a month for a monthly payment, maybe we could argue, arguably say we're massively underbuilt for that product and or for, you know, something even more affordable. Then we'd have what I'd call, you know, a uh, decoupling of, of households. But you do have a divergence. You've got those that are fortunately very well off and those that are unfortunately below the poverty line that are multiple families living together. So I think, you know, you really have to dig in to understand you know, are we talking about the folks that are listening here? Are we talking about the Wall Street folks? Who, who's our audience? But the average household income is $70,000 a year. And we're talking about a lot of people that can't afford the homes that are being priced in the threes today and and arguably high threes or, you know, fours. So I think we're underbuilt for the right affordable product, but not underbuilt based on the product that we're offering today. Well, oh, that makes a lot
1: of sense. Basically, it, it, if I can paraphrase, it sounds like you think that we are building sufficiently but not the right kinds of products so there might be a mismatch between the available supply and the demand for what we're actually building.
5: Well, it's just a question of the number of households right that we actually need supply for. During COVID and, you know, have we've continued to see a trend of more investors second homes. Those aren't households that are primary households that you'd say we're underbuilt. Are we underbuilt because we need more second homes? Are we underbuilt because we have more investors that want to own SFR and therefore they're going to look for, you know, attractive returns? That's not the same thing as being underbuilt based on primary households.
1: So Ivy, then what do you make of the pretty prevalent forecasts out there that we are in the U.S. somewhere between one or seven million homes underbuilt, depending on who you listen to? How do you view those analyses?
5: You know. I I don't like to comment too much on other people's analyses, especially if I don't understand their methodology other than very high level. But, you know, if you were to say we, you know, look at a point in time, let's say 2012 and say we're from here to 2022 for the last 10 years, we underbuilt to normalize demand. You can make that argument, but what happens if you started the clock at 2002 and you accounted for all the years we overbuilt. So it's very dependent on, where you start the clock, and what analysis are you using, and what demand number. They never talk about the demand side. They talk about the supply side, what we've built. But what what goes into the demand analysis, I haven't read anything from any of those that are forecasting. So the demand side is very much predicated, as I said, on household growth. Household growth is determined by population. What goes into population? Death rate, birth rate, immigration. All are going up until COVID, the birth rate is now improving, but had been decelerating, had been rate of growth had been decelerating substantially. Population growth in the decade of the Census Bureau for 2000 or the decennial survey, 2020, was the second lowest population or the lowest population since the 1930s. And household growth was the second slowest. And that looks even worse if you go out to 2030 now based on the forecasts. And those are hard numbers. Those, you can't argue with these numbers. The only thing that can change is immigration. So to go back to your question, Dave, ask your forecasters what how they're measuring demand.
3: It's interesting because you, you when you think about demand and then you think about just the number of Americans who have second homes, you know, that's a that's a that's a big number that I don't think we're taking into consideration. And and if you do you take that into consideration, does that impact the overbuilding or the situation that we're in right now or or not?
5: Absolutely. I mean, it used to be, but it was like several hundred thousand a year were um, built for homes that were newly built for single-family second homes or the, that there were starts, yeah, for a second home. You know, looking at what that number is today or wasn't in the production um, production starts. They were non or custom, it's called, and how much of that is second homes. But I think that number is accelerated and there is a perception by those second homeowners. There's two different types of I own a second home I truly want a second home or is it really just an investment? And if the cost of capital increases or, you know, I'm concerned about the economy, how quickly do they want to liquidate those homes? And I think that started to happen, especially after COVID, as people that had maybe been in a hybrid work situation or were completely remote now are being asked to come back. So I know, for example, in Boise, talking to a large builder there, they were seeing many people being asked to return to California that were living in Idaho that full-time that now are being asked to work hybrid and they had to sell their homes. So some of those second homes, I think the acceleration was related to remote work that may be um, at an inflection point, whether, you know, my employer, my new employer wants you to be in the office three days a week. Is that going to change how people live? And is it going to go back eventually to full-time you have to be in the office? I don't think so personally, but it could. Some employers certainly are saying that.
1: So, I mean, given where we are in the housing market right now, where affordability is at a relatively low rate, do you think there is a solution or are we sort of stuck in this low affordability era for the foreseeable future?
5: You know, I think that we discuss it all the time um, internally and amongst ourselves as my colleagues that I've been with, in many cases, 15, 20 years. And I think that we think that the headwinds are more significant than the tailwinds. So when you look at that and try to, you know, basically evaluate what does that in aggregate mean? I think it means we're going to be in what could be a fairly benign sluggish environment. And you're going to have some ebbs and flows and some markets are going to do well and some that aren't. But there's not going to be some major national change unless we have something catastrophic happen. You know, we're concerned and feel that there's complacency around climate change. And it's real. And and you can argue that, you know, Florida won't be underwater in my lifetime. But how many storms incrementally every year are we going to see before people start to realize that the flood insurance, property taxes, all of the variables that matter to people are changing now. But it does not change the demand for homes in Florida as of yet. And whether it be, you know, Governor Abbott in Texas is, is investing in building walls to try to keep the, the state from sinking and, and being underwater. What has, you know, the governor DeSantis done in Florida? Absolutely nothing. And maybe they can't. But those are factors that we think about beyond today. What's going to matter in t- a decade from now? What's going to matter in two decades from now? We're going to have a hell of a lot of people that are no longer with us, the boomers that are going to pass away. Assuming they don't have any way to keep people living to, you know, 130 <laughs> or something. But you know, there's there's bigger picture questions. That we want to ask ourselves, if we're looking to make people tell me right now, I have a lot of friends, would you think it's okay to, I'm going to buy in Florida? And I'll say, I wouldn't buy in Florida right now. Personally, I'd go rent in Florida because I don't want to be in Cleveland in the winter, but I'm not buying in Florida. The Florida values have surged, it doubled since COVID in many cases. So, you know, if anything, I'm a seller in Florida, sell that, sell it, you know, hit that bid. It It doesn't make any sense to me. And yet, you know, people are still migrating there. If they're not migrating. There's always migration and relocation, always. But remember, it's a rate of change that matters. So if it was where a builder would say 40% of my sales during COVID came from out of state, but now it's 25, but that's great. It's the rate of change that other anal- analysis does not incorporate. And that's what drives the demand for housing is the rate of change, incremental change. So that's a long-winded answer. But I, I think we feel like the market is kind of in this Uh, again, stuck zone because of the Dave your your thought about affordability or lack of it. And, you know, the economic backdrop is still positive and we're stuck. What happens if that changes? And I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to say what the economy is going to do. I might have my personal biases, but I think, again, more headwinds than tailwinds. And I'm a seller of real estate right now where the profits are substantial and there could be better returns that are less risk oriented.
3: That's an interesting point, right? So you're a seller right now. So that means you're not a buyer. And, you know, our audience is very much in the world of real estate investing, myself included. And, and so w- what would you advise us? What should an investor do right now? You know, just given the. The writing on the wall and, and the current climate, should we just park our money? Is it? Are there better opportunities elsewhere? Do we buy crypto? I mean, I'm kidding. That, never do that. But what, what do we
1: do, Ivy? <laughs>
5: well, you know, I'm outside my lane of expertise. I'll tell you what I've done. And then, you know, being more risk off person in general. So, you know, it's always dependent upon how old you are. You have the kids, you know, you're going to be able to pay your mortgage. But you know, assuming you have excess capital and you are, you can, you can arguably put it in something that's more diversified, but I have more of my money allocated. More of my capital is in treasuries, whether it ladders, you know, short, at the short end of the curve, long end of the curve, there's munis, munis, depending on if you have to pay big fees, but I'm, I'm talking outside my lane. You know, I, I, I could just tell you real estate, but I think it's, I think why, take risk when you can earn at today's rates that are likely at not going to be sustained. Maybe not next year. They're going to, maybe they'll still be high, but they're not going to be sustained at these levels for long. So lock in on the, on the long end of the curve and, and maybe have some short end exposure. But again, I'm going to stop there. That's it. That's completely not non-expert thoughts and advice.
1: Yeah. I think it's a good point. I, I, I think a lot of people who are into real estate only invest in real estate. They you know, just pick one asset class and go after that. But to your point, Ivy, the risk-adjusted returns on treasuries are pretty good now compared to a lot of different asset classes. And basically, that just means like if you can earn 5% on a short-dated treasury right now, with minimal risk, hopefully now that we've, right. you know, hopefully averted a, a debt ceiling disaster, then back to minimal risk. Uh, why would you buy a rental property, for example, that had a 5% cash on cash return or a 4% cash on cash return? Because you probably, um, obviously, the rental property has significantly higher risk than the treasury. And there are other ways to earn Returns on real estate other than just cash flow, like paying down your mortgage, and there's tax benefits. There's a lot of other things to think about. Uh, but I think it's a it's a very valid point, Ivy, that you know, just on a cash flow perspective, there are for the first time in maybe a decade, attract other attractive options for getting cash flow other than rental property investing. You know, I,
5: I one area that I, I was two areas that I was bullish on, uh, more incrementally bullish on, is are. Uh, Columbus, Ohio. I don't live there, but I think it's affordable. Uh, it's a little south, so the winters aren't as bad, and there is a massive chip plant being built there that's going to bring substantial job growth. And I don't think that the market's figured that out yet, so the values are still compelling, especially the arbitrage of coming from something at high cost to my like, arguably not low low cost, but because tax rates in Ohio is still like four percent versus call it New York eight percent, but and then you know it's one of my bankers lives in um Richmond, Virginia. I have a friend that I worked with at Solly back when I started on the street, and that's that's another market that's affordable um and maybe more attractive relative and and you know you think about just markets that have yet to be um, really have the 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 sheep mentality where everybody goes there. you know and I think you know Cleveland needs desperately single family rental. I know when I was moving back here looking, there's nothing that's new and, and, you know, something that's well kept and really not a very good level of landlords, but there's no land here. And so then you have to buy up old houses and you have to refurbish them. And there's risk associated that means you're not in the right location again. So, you know, I think there's, I'd go for the markets where climate risk is, is low. If you're a long-term real estate investor where, you know, there's significant incremental job growth coming now, Richmond, Virginia may not have job growth like Columbus, you know, Phoenix is getting a chip plant as well, or they're building a chip plant. But I think Phoenix is, you know, an area that's already seen tremendous amount of growth. Um, But you know, Columbus is what the the, really the city I wanted to highlight that I'm interested in. Ivy, you
1: famously, you know, predicted the 2008 housing crash. Do you have any other predictions? You're uh, shopping around now, or think you feel strongly about these days?
5: No, um, that was really. Not to sound um, flippant about it, but it was so obvious. You know, mortgage credit was just go goes, free money. You could fog a mirror and get a mortgage. You know, I think fortunately there is a very um, strong framework, a very strong uh, mortgage framework here in this country today. We're going to have rising delinquencies in FHA. Uh, We do have, unfortunately, very high-end back-end ratios for that FHA VA product. Uh, There will be challenges if we have a recession and you will see defaults and foreclosures, but not to the magnitude. So, you know, we don't have a housing problem in the United States today when it comes to the risks that GFC brought on that we as analysts analyze. There's a lot of other problems that could arguably say that housing will be a tall midget, but it doesn't mean necessarily that you should still therefore buy housing incrementally. It may be that what you own, you know, you don't want to sell it. You want diversity. Maybe you own 10 houses. You sell one and you buy some treasuries. Diversify. Take some chips off the table. Don't sell everything. If you're in Florida, you might want to sell more there than if you're in Ohio. But, you know, I do think the thing that we'll be doing more work on is climate change, because I think that is concerning and I don't know enough about it as of yet to make any, you know, significant call but I do have concern based on insurers I've spoken with, some climate experts I've spoken with, but I have a lot more work to do there.
3: Yeah, that's interesting because there's such a huge influx of people going to the Florida market. And and, and that, I mean, obviously with respect to climate change, so many things are going on there with with weather. Uh, and I, I personally have investors that are unable to get insurance on properties that they're buying because of that. And so I think that's a, a phenomenal point. And, you know, with respect to uh, Columbus, Ohio. Now, I've got my eyeballs set on it because it's, you know, as as they've said before, all roads lead to ivy. So I'm going to take <laughs> some time to look at that market.
5: Don't forget about, uh, thank you for saying that. Very kind. California, the insurers, just State Farm is no longer going to insure properties in California because of the fire risk that we're seeing. Wow. wow. And so, you know, I think that it's not so much that Florida will be underwater. I mean, New York is a risk. They're talking about, I think it was New Hampshire's a risk. There's not just, You know the New England states are at risk. The south, you know, eastern parts of the country are at risk. But it's not that they're going to be underwater per se. We know that, you know, in Houston that that we've seen, you know, inches of of the state um, sink. Um, I don't know if everyone saw the 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 high rise tower in San Francisco that's six inches, um, you know, has shrunk or or sunk. But I think it's the insurance and the costs and property taxes that would be, as an investor, what you're maybe the hidden costs that you're not factoring in when you're doing your calculations to determine your expected returns that probably become more problematic as much as the damage you'll get from expected acceleration in storms.
1: Great. Well, Ivy, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you think our audience should know?
5: I don't think I have anything top of mind, but I appreciate the opportunity and I promise i will call you if I do.
1: <laughs> All right. Please. Well, in the meantime, if anyone wants to connect with you, where should they do
5: that? Um, just our website so is com or iv at zelmanassociates.com is my direct email. Um, but we appreciate the opportunity and uh, thanks for having us on the show.
1: Absolutely. Thanks again. Jamil, what, what did you take away from all that? I mean, I, a lot.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I hope so.
3: You know, she's a, a, she's a, just brilliant. And, you know, li- listening to her analysis, it really gives you uh, an understanding of how deep you can go in the data to determine what's happening, you know. And I, her her insights are alarming in, in some regards. And in, in some regards, they're almost you, – you, it's what you would predict – Right. But I, I love her forecast. I love, you know, the way that she's just describing the overall condition of the market right now, you know, sluggish, but there's, there's definitely some concerns. And, and I, I think that as investors, especially for the bigger pockets audience, we should be, uh, really, really checking what Ivy had to say and see how that resonates with your investment strategy. And, you know, of course, um, don't buy in Columbus because you know, I'll because i be buying there. Yeah, watch out.
1: Jamil's going to outbid you, <laughs> all of you. Uh, but I'm curious what you, what you made of her comment about not buying right now. And sort of, we got briefly into this idea of risk-adjusted returns. And she was talking about buying treasuries and that real estate's not attractive. Curious your thoughts. I mean, look... <laughs>
3: There, there's aspects of what she's saying that are really right, and you know, like there's risk. There's risk involved if you if you're buying a property right now and your cash, you know, your cap rate or cash on cash is five, five percent. I mean, why? Yeah. And of course, you got you got the other benefits, depreciation. There's 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 lots of there's other benefits there that you have, but there's a, a tremendous amount of risk associated with for those benefits. So you got treasuries that are going to return the same amount, and you know we. They're the safest investment that we have in this country. I mean, for you know, all intents and purposes, there should be some diversification then.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's it's if you're like if you're an investor who's just looking for a stabilized asset, like you just want to go out, buy a rental property, have it be pretty easy, it's in good condition, you just collect rent checks every month. A treasury might be a better option for you right <laughs> yes. now, like at five percent. That being said, you know, you know this from your business and the deals that I'm investing in right now, there's still great opportunity if you're going to do value add, for example. Like right. if you're going to buy something and fix it up or you're going to flip it, great, good opportunities there. If you're buying in one of these unique markets where um, you know, demand is surging and there's huge in migration and there's limited supply, still good things to do. If you need tax benefits, they're still good to do. But I think when you're just looking, should I go out and buy like a plain vanilla rental property? You know, in most, in a lot of markets, the answer is probably no, No. because you can probably invest your money at 5% and wait and see what happens for six months. Um, I'm not personally doing that. I do own a bunch of treasuries, uh, but I'm willing to do more like value add stuff. But I just saying, if you are the kind of person who's just looking for that, you know, hands off, easy approach, might not want to do it. I agree. I, I think I think she she definitely gave
3: us the path, right? There's opportunities and there's places where those opportunities exist and if you are smart about what you're buying and she, again, a contrarian by nature, she's she's telling us look at where other people are not. You know, where where are people where's the sleepers? Where's that happening? And if you could find, again, you can find some of these value add opportunities in markets like that. You could and and hold them then to rent. I mean, you you might even do even better there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's some definitely opportunities. I don't want to uh, dissuade people from thinking about it. Obviously, I, I we both are uh, long on the the housing yep. market. So, but I do think like just that mindset is really helpful. Like seeing what other assets are out there how risky they are compared to real estate it's just a good exercise for people to undertake even if they do wind up buying real estate it's just helpful to know what alternatives are out there and why you're doing it before we go though i did want to ask you about what you said i don't know if there were some some people you work with but you said people in florida were un- just like straight up unable to get insurance
3: yeah and you know it's interesting because they're they're buying property that had been affected by Weather, right? Storms. And so there's a lot, a lot of these houses right now are coming onto the market or being traded homeowners that, that figured out their insurance situation and now just want to disposition the property. Um, they're going into this secondary market of investment real estate where they would find me or that- people that I would work with. And what's happening right now is, yeah, there's great deals to be bought. And, you know, all of a sudden you got a buyer here who was trying to buy a wholesale deal and he can't close because he can't get
1: insurance. Wow. That's crazy.
3: And that's happening, and it's happening more and more and more. So I think what Ivy had to say is pay attention to climate change. Pay attention to where these insurers are having some trepidation because of risk. And I would I would be cautious.
1: Yeah, I, I'm asking because I heard a stat that in Florida, they're expecting insurance premiums to go up 40% this year, which is insane. In one is. year, 40% is unbelievable. What does that do to the rental buyer? Right. Yeah. It, exactly. Yeah. Like it, this. This makes it really difficult to cash flow in certain types of markets, and the, it's also unpredictable. You know, like rent typically goes up two, three percent a year. You, you know, outside of the last few years, normally you can count on it keeping up with inflation. But if you start to see insurance or taxes, for that matter, starting to outpace inflation and outpace your income. That is that is significant. And, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about Florida, but she also mentioned uh, California. Uh, I know where I, I primarily invest in Colorado. We have the same issue with wildfires there. I know people who have had to either delay closing or have missed out on properties because they couldn't get insurance in, in you know, wildfire prone areas. So, um, you know, normally be analyzing deals five years ago. I barely thought about insurance. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I like Great. was just you like, too. pencil it in. But now I really think you you need to call a broker. You need to have a serious conversation. Before you even start bidding on properties, you should probably just really start having conversation with what is available in the areas that you're considering so you don't put in time, effort, and money into a deal that may not be insurable. They may even have to add
3: an insurance contingency onto these contracts because it, it could be as as up
1: in the air as financing. Totally. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. That's that's a really good point. Well, hopefully that wasn't too sad for everyone. <laughs> no, but it was but you know what it was sobering,
3: Dave. And yeah, and again, yeah. because we've we we've, we've we've talked about possibly having hit the bottom already, you know, let's let's gracefully carry forward, guys, in a in a in a in a sober manner so that we don't have what we've seen over and over again with these hyperinflated markets. I mean, I think I think some
1: sobriety is warranted. Well said. All right, well thanks again for being here. I always love doing these interviews with you. We appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and share it with people you know. Ivy is obviously an expert and, you know, people have very complicated and passionate views about the housing market and I think most people who are interested in the real estate space would benefit from learning from Ivy. So do us a favor and share this episode if you enjoyed it as much as Jamil and I did. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time for On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies.